ask you about the former Overstock CEO, Patrick Byrne, who spoke, I guess, for eight hours mm -hmm. behind closed doors with the committee the other day. He said to reporters, um, there is so much interest in the December 18th Oval Office meeting because it all comes down to it. The crux of history comes down to it. And then his lawyer said, stop talking. <laughs> What's the rest of the sentence? Exactly what is the crux of history here? I don't know. You know, it's hard to get into the mind of somebody like Patrick Byrne. It's hard to get into the mind of somebody like Rudy Giuliani. Is this a grift? Do they really believe some of these conspiracies? But he has been, I mean... It, it seems like Patrick has come to believe that there is some deep state conspiracy to overthrow the government and uh, or to at least have the deep state way of the government. And so I don't know what would have come next in his mind, but I can tell you his uh, he seems a little unmoored from reality when it comes to politics and when it comes to democracy. Season two, episode 22, a little unmoored from reality. Welcome to Capital Insurrection Report, a podcast dedicated to news and analysis regarding the January 6, 2021 attack on our nation's capital. I'm Scott Kuhn. The intro to this week's show is taken from Adam Kinzinger's appearance on Face a Nation on July 17th, when asked about Patrick Byrne's testimony before investigators for the House Select Committee to investigate the January 6th attack. In Kinzinger's opinion, of course, Byrne is a, a little unmoored from reality which could quite, you know, perhaps ex explain not only his behavior, but the behavior of any number of people involved in the Trumpist circles regarding January 6th. In this episode, I'll be reviewing the testimony offered at the seventh public hearing of the House Select Committee to investigate the January 6th attack uh, on July 12th, and also discuss the upcoming developments at the eighth public hearing of the committee scheduled for prime time at 8 p.m. on Thursday, July 21st. Though it's been only a week since the last episode, it was actually a pretty solid week for prosecutors and courts in D.C. So let's go through the numbers uh, with regard to the various arrests and legal outcomes, uh, as always, sourced from Sedition Track. There have been a total of 843 individuals charged in the January 6th attack so far, an increase of five since the last tally. There have been a total of 383 indictments, no change there. Five deceased, holding steady. One dismissal, same. One acquittal, same. 341 convictions, an increase of 10 since the last tally. So, 10 convictions a week, uh, two weeks running. Pretty good. And 169 sentencings. An increase of six. Six since the last tally. Nice. So, overall, a good week. They are maintaining the pace. It's not a pace that's fast enough to uh, get all the defendants before the statute of limitations expires. But it's a good week compared to some other weeks. We are now currently on a pace to hit 400 convictions before the end of the summer. And that's assuming convictions don't actually pick up. There's actually a good chance just tracking where cases are with regard to plea bargains and various short uh, trials, right, that it, we could hit 400 before the end of the summer. Let's do another defendant profile. I thought it would be a quick defendant profile. Um, 
But the more I looked into it, the, the more I realized that it wasn't going to be as quick as, as perhaps I'd, I'd hoped. I'd selected this defendant in part because I, I thought it would be quick and easy, and yet uh, it proved, has proven not to be. This week's winner is John, a.k.a. Johnny Thomas Gordon, 47, of Bayard, West Virginia. Now, I had to look his hometown up. Bayard is a coal mining town in Grant County, West Virginia. And in 1920, it had about 1,000 residents, but today it's down to uh, an estimated 200 residents, uh, at least as of the 2020 census. may have gone down more since then. Press reports have Gordon uh, down as living in Bayard, but in the charging documents, his address was listed at as being in the Linwood Apartments in Davis, West Virginia, which is odd, because that's yet another redaction failure. I seem to be collecting them. Uh, that's probably something they, they should have put in there, but uh, the, the charging documents have him in Davis, West Virginia. Not that much difference between Davis, Davis and Bayard anyway. Uh, Davis now has about 600 residents and can also claim to be the home of legendary Grammy Award-winning accordionist Frankie Yankovic. So that's their, their claim to fame. I don't know if you're old enough to remember uh, Mr. Yankovic, the, the king of polka. Um, when Gordon made his court appearance, so he has yet another list address on record. Uh, he lists his address as Martinsburg, West Virginia. So he appears to be someone who moves around a fair bit. Gordon was identified in the FBI BOLO, Be on the Lookout photos, as AFO, Assault on a Federal Officer, number 218. Now, sedition hunters had assigned Gordon the hashtag, hashtag, in God I trust rioter, because Gordon has a very large tattoo that covers most of his scalp, and the back of his head reads, in God I trust. It, in gothic script. Now, he seems to apparently, I guess, shave his head in order to ensure maximum visibility for his large head tattoo, which also features a, a like a large green monster hand that is ripping the skin off of his skull, apparently also going through the bone. You can see uh, what looks like brain matter uh, and a variety of little demonic grotesques. Uh, who are also in his brain for some reason. And Jesus! Jesus! Somehow Jesus is in there. Uh, he's on the back of his head, and he's casting some kind of high-level divine magic spell that appears to be doing something. Maybe he's vanishing, banishing the demons from, from his brain. I'll be honest, it's not a great tattoo. Uh, but it does take up his whole head. It, it's kind of hard to miss. And honestly, it's probably the most interesting thing about this guy. Uh, when I was looking at the Bolo photos over a year ago now, I thought, and I'm sure many others thought as well, they're definitely going to pick this guy up pretty quickly. Uh, he's a man who has a tattoo covering his entire scalp. That's pretty distinctive. Somebody's going to recognize him. And so, you know, the months go on, the weeks go on, and, uh, you know, you kind of forget about him. It's like, oh, yeah, they, they never picked this guy up. And then finally, uh, they arrested him earlier this month. So there's some very interesting language in his statement of facts. Quote, 
On or about February 15, 2021, open source searches were conducted on AFO 218. End quote. It doesn't say by whom, right? Just somebody did some searching. Now, coincidentally, on Twitter, on February 15, 2021, somebody said that they sent a tip into the FBI and they posted what appears to be a very good police photo of Gordon from an earlier arrest. Why does that matter? Well, usually in the charging documents, the government actually says when they rely on tips from open source sleuths. Um, but here they just kind of implied it, right? Now, what again, why does it matter? Well, it's a legal document. Um, actually, if you're going to take anonymous tips, that's great. See something, say something. The government strongly encourages that. On the other hand, um, they, there's a process whereby they have to go through and they then have to verify this information. They have to verify the person's identity uh, and all that. So it, it's kind of odd. I don't want to say that the government appears to be taking credit for the work that was done by a volunteer. Um, you know, and, and of course, I mean, the person obviously remains wanted to be anonymous, but you could just say it's an anonymous tip. You don't need to say, somebody did some searching and we're not going to say who. I, I thought that was very strange. Maybe it's just me. But whatever you think of that, the key thing here is they, they had this information on the identity of Gordon since the middle of February 2021. And they only just arrested him early in July. So, you know, that's, that's like a year and a half from identification to arrest which is an awfully long time. Now, here's something else from the charging documents. Quote, images posted on the Facebook and Instagram page of 794 Social Club, located at 1 South Main Street, Petersburg, West Virginia, showed an individual resembling AFO 218 receiving head tattoos, which appeared to match the head tattoos on AFO 218. Photographs from the open source search are provided below as exhibit two, end quote. And, of course, they put the photos of uh, the, the tattoos in the statement of match, uh, uh, of facts, and, of course, it's a match, right? I mean, it's this guy. I'm sure it's a one-of-a-kind. You can't have too many people coming in requesting this tattoo. This is not an off-the-rack tattoo. It's too weird. So, of course, I look for this uh, 794 Social Club, and you know what I found? I found that it doesn't exist. There's no such place as the 794 Social Club. There is, however, a 749 Social Club located on 1 South Main Street in Petersburg, West Virginia. So, that's odd, right? I mean, because, you know, first you got this slight misattribution, and then you have something, this transposition uh, in, in the address. It just... Sloppier, I mean, I read a lot of these, sloppier than I, I expect to find in the Statement of Facts, um, you know, in one of these January 6th cases. So, I mean, the word that keeps coming back to me is, is casual, right? Um, it's just very, very kind of a, a casual Statement of Facts. They don't redact his home address, and they get the name of his tattoo parlor wrong. And, of course, you know, they took 19 months, kind of inexplicably, to, to make an arrest. Oh, and of course, remember that that police photo that kicked it all off, that an anonymous 
Uh, Internet Sleuth, thank you for your service found. Well, it's from a, a previous arrest. He is a felon. So according again to the statement of facts, he has, they did a criminal history search on Gordon on March 25th, 2021, and they found that Gordon has, quote, several prior felony convictions in Pennsylvania and West Virginia for drug and firearms offenses, end quote. Several. So to my mind, that, that's more than two, right? As a recidivist felon. In March of 2021, Gordon did a voluntary interview with a local sheriff and admitted that he was at the Capitol on January 6th. And in August of 2021, the FBI conducted an interview with a witness who was described as having had, quote, a romantic relationship with Gordon, but who had terminated the relationship and was now involved in a child custody dispute, end quote. Interestingly, again, that the language there is a little sloppy, right? Doesn't say with whom the witness is having a custody dispute. I mean, I guess... Once again, we're supposed to infer that it's Gordon. Now, this witness says that Gordon admitted having been at the Capitol and throwing rocks at the doors of the Capitol, and also that Gordon had brought home a trash bag filled with clothes contaminated with chemical irritants. August of last year. So they've done all the work. The police officer has verified the identity. A local police officer has also had Gordon basically say, yes, I was at the Capitol, Another witness who is known personally to Gordon is able to testify that Gordon came home, bag full of capsaicin-soaked clothing, and said that he had thrown rocks at doors during the attack on the Capitol. So, I mean, and that's basically what he's charged with, right? Um, he got an AFO number somehow, but didn't apparently assault an officer. Uh, is certain, you know, well... Alleged, although it's on video, he's throwing rocks at, at these doors. Um, and they've charged him with six counts. Civil disorder, destruction of government property. Uh, they Basically, it costs more than $1,000 to uh, fix the doors. That's the, the line there. Entering and remaining in a restricted building or grounds. Disorderly and disruptive conduct in a restricted building or grounds. Disorderly conduct in a capital building and act of physical violence in the Capitol grounds or buildings. So, honestly, you know, I picked Gordon simply because when I saw he'd finally been arrested, I remembered him from last spring, uh, and I thought, you know, I had long thought, this day they're going to pick this guy up. kind of for, forgot about him. Uh, but then reading his statement of facts, it just leaves me with, with even more questions. This is someone with multiple, several felony drug and weapons convictions, and who also apparently moves around very frequently. So he was identified early, basically confessed to the police over a year ago. And the last follow-up appears to have been last August. And yet from August to now, almost a year, they just kind of they sat on it. Not their finest work. Um, you know, he's, you know, to my mind, of course, I mean... He's also interesting then that he is yet another felon who saw in Trump something worth fighting for. There's no doubt in my mind that many of the felons who came to D.C. for January 6th are individuals who've never been involved in the political process. They, they probably never registered a single voter, never canvassed a single neighborhood. 
Um, and in fact, you know, many of these felons are people who are going to be prohibited from voting, right? In West Virginia, uh, a felon has to complete their sentence. So Gordon is someone, you know, uh, kind of, of like Mr. Jenkins, right? Um, someone who's at some point lost his right to vote. So I don't know if he's under any court supervision. The, the law in West Virginia is basically, you know, you have to be off probation or parole, and then you can uh, get your right to vote back. Um, but, you know, nonetheless, it, it is very strange. I mean, I read a lot of court documents related to these cases, and oftentimes I am genuinely and sincerely impressed with the work of the FBI and of the AUSAs in bringing these indictments and drawing up the statements of facts. But this particular case is just, just kind of a mess. I mean, the word I keep coming back to is, is casual. Um, I mean, the more I think about it, maybe it could be that the reason that as these these cases have, have actually progressed, I've noticed that there's a difference. They actually get tighter. They, they've gotten longer. There's been more evidence and there's more con, you know, confirmation of identity. Uh, they appear more rigorous as it's gone on. And so it could be that this was just one that was drawn up very early and they just kind of just finally got back to it. Um, it's just not nearly as tight as what I've come to expect in reading a lot more of these more recent documents that were drawn up. So at any rate, I want to highlight Mr. Gordon. It's part of the story that, that just never seems to enter the press coverage. Uh, we talk about all the paramilitary gangs, the far-right zealots, that the internet incels. There is also a rather large proportion of men with prior felony convictions in the mob that attacked the Capitol on January 6th. Now, long-time listeners to the show will know, of course, I have my own theories about that, but, you know, Gordon's home in West Virginia isn't too terribly far from D.C., so it's certainly within the realm of possibility that when the bat signal went up, he was ready to self-mobilize and travel to D.C. to fight for Trump, um, the president whose appeal to convicted felons is unprecedented in American history. Now, before I get to the seventh hearing and the prospects for the uh, eighth hearing, I'd like to do a couple of quick updates. As I mentioned last time, Stuart Rhodes floated the possibility of testifying to the January 6th committee under his own conditions. Uh, basically, he just wanted to be able to go on primetime TV, presumably, and just spout off. And I, as I expected, that was a non-starter. That's not a thing that they were willing to let him do. Um, he also asked the, for the court to move his trial date to January. Uh, and his attorneys claimed that there was conflict with the hearings. Um, there was the fact that the committee is going to be issuing a report. Uh, you know, this was potentially prejudicial. All these kind of reasons. Now, that doesn't make any sense to me, right? If you think that the re report is going to be prejudicial to your client... Why do you want to move the trial date until after the report is released? So, you know, again, it's just more nonsense. His attorney, all these attorneys, you know, keep, not all, uh, but many of these attorneys, you know, as we've seen in the Bannon case, all these delay strategies. Now, I've listened to the call-in line for most of the Oath Keepers proceedings, and someone or other attorney for one of these defendants always winds up bringing it up. It's been, the trial date has been moved several times already. 
I think from, from January to April to July, and now they're gonna take place in two different groups, one in September and one in November. And it's pretty painfully obvious. First off, you know, I have enormous respect for Judge Meta. He's a very patient man, very hardworking man, but he's he's clearly tired of shifting his calendar around. And he's talked openly in court about how the defense has had plenty of time to be ready to, uh, you know, review the discovery material. So I don't think that Rhodes is going to be able to get the January trial date that he seems to want now. But it is strange to me that he says, on the one hand, he's ready to testify to the committee right now, live and in prime time. And yet somehow, you know, that's not prejudicial. But when it comes to getting ready for court, um, you know, he has to have a January date because all the stuff that's happening now would be prejudicial to his case. As if appearing before the committee wouldn't be. I mean, very, very strange. So he seems to be just kind of flailing about. In the meantime, the Department of Justice has been exploring the extent to which Sidney Powell, uh, the person who's, by the way, her name is finally coming up in the committee hearings, the extent to which she's been funding the legal defense in the Oath Keepers cases. Now, that's not new. The idea that um, they, she's been funding that, that's been flowing around for some time. I'll, I'll link to a couple of articles in, in the show notes. It, it, the idea that this had happened was confirmed by now disbarred Oath Keepers attorney Jonathan Mosley and also Kelly Sorrell. Of course, Kelly Sorrell, you'll be familiar with the, as the Oath Keepers lawyer uh, who also made an appearance in Exhibit 10 in the Vallejo material. So, yeah, we don't know which attorneys are being paid, which clients are, are, are you know, um, are getting the benefit of this largesse. Uh, according to the aforementioned sources, Kelly Maggs and Stuart Rhodes are two of them, and some of the other ones, perhaps, as well. So, to the extent that that's true, it kind of explains something that I've observed or, well, heard uh, listening in to some of these hearings, in that most of these attorneys, or some of these attorneys, are, are normal, um, they are pursuing what you would call a, a normal criminal defense for their clients. And uh, another proportion of them are, are very strange. Um, they're sometimes a little bit disruptive in court. And they're sometimes a little bit overly enthusiastic and emphatic. And they sometimes cite these strange conspiracy theories in court. Now, I'm not going to do it now, but you could easily kind of work it out from their behavior, Right. If an attorney is saying things in court that sound like something Sidney Powell might say, they may be getting paid by Sidney Powell. So this group, Defending the Republic, has reportedly raised $15 million, and it's unknown how much of that has gone to Oath Keepers attorneys, or perhaps other January 6th defendant attorneys as well. Now, I'm not going to say anything more than about that, right? But it's pretty clear that like so much else in the January 6th story, uh, it, it, there, when it comes to Oath Keeper's seditious conspiracy case, there's a Team Normal and Team Crazy. And uh, if you call it into the call-in line during the next hearing, you can kind of work out who's who on your own. Now, it's not illegal to do this, of course, you know, 
But what's new is that the DOJ is interested. Judge Maida is interested. And on June 22nd, the Department of Justice asked for the information, hey, are any of you getting paid for uh, by, or, or, you know, ask the attorneys basically, are any of you being paid by Sidney Powell's defending the Republic group? So it's all a whole bunch of stuff happening all at once. And I'm kind of like trying to get beyond the Oath Keepers cases, but they keep coming up again, right? So you've got Rhodes flailing about wildly, and we finally have Powell appearing in committee testimony, and this is, there's this prospect that, you know, soon, perhaps this week, we'll learn which attorneys are actually being paid by Sidney Powell. So, you know, I think that we're going to be learning more about this nexus between Powell, the Oath Keepers, and Trump soon, hopefully. Um, it'll also be interesting to see if they ever actually look into the money that Powell gave to Code of Vets, which is a, a, an Oath Keepers charity, I'm using scarecrow, charity, uh, in the run-up to January 6th. Uh, they were apparently given over $100,000. So, just want to keep you abreast of that. Uh, there's another item that carries over from last episode, which is Bannon's claim, Steve Bannon's claim, that he also wants to testify before the committee. And that, of course, has also fizzled out. Surprise, surprise, that's not happening either. And Bannon also seems to be flailing. His attorneys, over the course of last week, fired a whole slew of rapid-fire motions, all of which uh, amounted to nothing. On Friday afternoon, Bannon's attorneys filed a motion to dismiss. And that's not going to happen, right? So the proceedings are going to begin on um, Monday the 18th uh, before Judge Nichols at 9 a.m. Looking at the court calendar, it says Monday is going to be jury selection and Tuesday the trial begins. So, you know, there's going to be a jury trial in the ceremonial courtroom before Trump appointee Judge Nichols. So, yeah, despite all the legal filings, this is a pretty straightforward case. Uh, Bannon, you know, is not a government employee. He's not an attorney. There's not executive privilege that is going to apply. There's not attorney-client privilege that's going to apply. Now, the, the, the penalty he faces, of course, isn't all that great. Uh, up to a year in prison and a $100,000 fine. I mean, again, not that great. For a lot of people, that would be a lot of uh, real money. But Bannon's got that big Seinfeld money from the residuals. So, Judge Nichols, of course, again, Trump appointee, but he's the same judge who has steadily been rejecting all of the nonsensical motions that Bannon's team have been filing. So, I, you know, this is going to be a big week. We've got the eighth hearing, uh, the last hearing in this group of hearings in prime time. I've always expected big things from the primetime hearings. They came in with a bang. They're going to have to go out with a bang. And also, Steve Bannon's trial in D.C., for contempt of Congress. So, big week for January 6th related cases. Now, I know I've spent a lot of time on the various investigative teams working for the committee and on the sophisticated seven-step plan that is the outline of the committee's understanding of the January 6th attack. So, I'm not going to recapitulate that again in this episode. In the seventh hearing, 
what we saw was really a, a synthesis of the work of several of the teams, maybe even all the teams. Now, I'd hope that we'd see more material finally at long last from the green team, the team focusing on finance. But, you know, there's less follow-up on the material also from the Secret Service revealed in the last hearing than I would have expected, uh, and also the, this green team material. But the rest of it, it seemed to be a synthesis of the material that we've gotten from the other teams. So, you know, when I first watched, you know, I was a little disappointed um, because we're being introduced to all these characters without any context. So there's a reason why I introduced this with Patrick Byrne, right? Uh, we get this material from Patrick Byrne. You know, he's just kind of introduced. Uh, he's just dropping to the West Wing without any explanation of who he is what the relationship to Trump and Trumpism is, or, or anything else. But in thinking about this, it's led me to really understand the approach that the committee appears to be taking. The fundamental problem that the committee is facing is reducing the complexity of what I've come to describe as a crowdsourced coup attempt. There are so many players, and there's such a complex web of relationships and interactions that it's very difficult for the public to keep up. Indeed, it's difficult for, for anyone to keep up. Even within the sedition hunting community, there are people who specialize in different types of defendants, uh, different types of actors, looking at people by region or group affiliation or behavior, however you want to cut it, you know, where they are at different times. Do you remember season two, episode 14, The Path to Trump, which focused just on the people on Clay Clark's whiteboard, which focuses mainly on Mike Flynn, the people around Mike Flynn, and a special emphasis on people in the new apostolic reformation uh, dominionist movement. And just listing the names on that whiteboard, it took me like an hour and 20 minutes without really stopping to explain who any of these people really are or doing a deep dive on any of them. Uh, you could do a mini-series just on Mike Flynn and the Flynn Network and still understate the complexity involved in January 6th. And so the fundamental mission in the committee hearings is to reduce this level of complexity. Although I do hope that the eventual report that the committee produces is going to try to capture the whole network. Uh, Zoe Lofgren, in uh, an appearance just today on one of the Sunday talk shows, said they're going to produce an interim report, and then they're going to do a final report. So we don't know the timeline. For either of those. The committee's focused very tightly on leading up to Trump, and they are not trying to diffuse responsibility, they're trying to concentrate responsibility. Now, for someone like me, right, I see a rabbit hole, I want to go down the rabbit hole. I want to explain, for example, how someone like Hans von, von Spakovsky has spent decades creating a false narrative around election fraud on behalf of the Heritage Foundation in an effort to undermine faith in democracy and lay the, fasc the, the foundation for a fascist, anti-democratic state. The committee is doing the opposite of that. They're, they're not really going down the rabbit holes. They're like, oh, Patrick Byrne, not going down the rabbit hole. They just introduce him. Um, they're just cutting through the wall of bullshit to try to show conclusively how all the roads really do lead to Trump and his choice to prepare a self-coup. And in my mind, that's all to the good. 
You can't move the needle in public opinion if you only just confuse the public with more data than they can absorb at one time. If your goal is to preserve electoral democracy by de-Trumpifying the Republican Party, it might be a good approach, and it's probably more feasible than, than presenting the whole story. Keep it simple, stupid, right? You're probably, I mean, you can never really tell the complete story anyway. I mean, even on this podcast, I know I've had to intentionally leave things out uh, just because even my very dedicated listenership has their limit, right? So, still, I mean, the, the thing that is lurking in the back of my mind, the reptilian part of my brain, is the danger that even if something is done about Trump, even if you take him out of the picture, we still have this vast fascist, Christo-fascist network that is absolutely not going to stop. They will absolutely will not stop here unless they are stopped here. Hopefully the final report of the committee is, and hopefully decisive action by the Department of Justice are going to stop them. Um, and I know there's a lot of different opinions on that. And so, you know, my, like, as I watched this hearing, the seventh hearing on the 12th, I thought, they're really reducing the, com the complexity perhaps too much. But then I turned to the transcripts and I look and I see really this hearing lived up to Jamie Raskin's promise. Right? You remember the title of the last episode. Raskin promised us other witnesses. And so what did he mean by that? Well, I went through and I looked at everyone who they had testimony from or video clips from, right? So there are some people who haven't testified yet who nonetheless they have video from those horses, right? Like Steve Bannon, for example. And if you just list all those people, this is who you get just in this one hearing. These are all the witnesses. And this was uh, just a cavalcade a parade of people, almost exclusively Trumpist insiders, testifying about January 6th uh, or giving other information, right, in some other video format. So you had Mitch McConnell, Senate Minority Leader, Secretary of Labor Gene Scalia, Pat Sabloni, of course, White House Counsel, former White House Counsel under Trump, William Barr, former Attorney General under Trump, Kaylee McEnany, former White House press secretary, Ivanka Trump, uh, of course, right, Donald Trump's daughter slash advisor, Judd Deere, a former White House deputy press secretary, Jason Miller, Trump campaign senior advisor, Justin Clark, deputy campaign manager and current Trump attorney, Cassidy Hutchinson, of course, Mark Meadows' a senior aide, Sidney Powell, uh, who was special counsel, for like an hour and 15 minutes, right? Uh, just, you know, the release of Kraken Lady. I mean, how else, how are you going to describe Sidney Powell? Eric Hirschman, senior advisor. Uh, Michael Flynn, uh, former lieutenant general and convicted felon. Derek Lyons, counselor to the president. Rudy Giuliani, a disbarred attorney. Alex Jones, of course, no introduction there. The InfoWars guy. Tim Poole a far-right YouTuber who was formerly uh, of Occupy, uh, just the grift flips, you know, over to the other side, apparently. 
Matt Bracken, another far right commentator. Salty Cracker. I, okay, I will admit I never heard of Salty Cracker before. Uh, another far right YouTuber. Jim Watkins, of course, everybody knows him. He's a QAnon guy. 8chan, 8kun, uh, whatever. Jody Williams, the founder of the Donald website. Dr. Donnell Harvin, who is the Chief of Homeland Security and Intelligence for D.C., with a few, I think, Democrats to testify. Kelly Sorrell, of course, needs no introduction. Uh, Oath Keepers Council, they include some of her testimony. Katrina Pearson, the rally organizer and a former Trump campaign spokesperson. Steve Bannon, a podcaster and convicted felon uh, who's on trial for contempt of Congress this week. Nicholas Luna, the Trump's body man. Sarah Matthews, Trump's deputy press secretary. Um, Sheila Craighead, the White House photographer. Roger Stone, yet another convicted felon. Third person on this list who got a pardon from Trump. Ali Alexander, of course. Uh, Sammy Davis Jr. lookalike and rally organizer. Republican Congresswoman Debbie Lesko. Stephen Miller, Trump senior advisor. Slash Nosferatu lookalike. Uh, Vincent Haley, uh, Deputy Assistant to the President and also speechwriter, uh, who wrote the speech for the rally at the Ellipse. Julie Radford, who's Ivanka Trump's Chief of Staff, and Stuart Rhodes in a video clip. So that's 35 people. So that's a lot of people. So I, I you know, I thought it was like, yeah, they're reducing the complexity too much. Even if you just look at the number of witnesses they called. And, you know, again, it's like, why aren't they having all these people testify live? It would take hours, right? Um, using the video testimony not only gives them, the, obviously, uh, the power to select out, you know, a lot of the boring parts and just focus on the most relevant, salient parts, but also uh, it gives them uh, just, just, you know, just for the sake of time, right? I mean, that's just a lot of testimony from a lot of different witnesses, and not everybody is going to have time to, to know who the heck all these people are, right? I mean, I had to go through and look up, you know, I mean, some of the, the titles for them. I mean, obviously, you know, I know Roger Stone is a convicted felon, uh, you know, but I had to remind myself, for example, what Nick Luna's exact position was in the Trump administration. So Jamie Raskin promised us that they were going to have uh, a lot more witnesses, right? And absolutely delivered and we saw like the first mention of so many people who I thought should have been front and center from day one nonetheless the we're finally getting to the inner circle the rally organizers the the team crazy we're getting to the people who really have the, the highest level of culpability and who lead directly to Donald Trump so in the spirit of also doing my part to try to reduce this complexity, I'm going to make an editorial decision with regard to this episode. At the end of the hearing, uh, we heard testimony from two witnesses, Stephen Ayers and Jason Van Tattenhove. The hearing itself ran for a little over two and a half hours, and the testimony of Ayers and Van Tattenhove took up about a half an hour of that. Now, as I mentioned last time, I expect to be underwhelmed by the testimony for these particular witnesses, and I was. 
Now, Van Tattenhove uh, was former spokesperson for the Oath Keepers, and he left them like five years ago and had very little to say directly with regard to the involvement of the Oath Keepers on January 6th. And we've already covered the Oath Keepers and their strange ideology, what I call their folk ideology, quite a bit. So we don't really need to go over too much about what he had to say about them. Um, you know, I mean, even though, I mean, the time that he was president of the Oath Keepers, of course, was certainly a, a very interesting time in the history of the group with all the standoffs and all that. So, I mean, his role at the hearing was basically to serve as a character witness against Stuart Rhodes and presumably I mean, the Oath Keepers movement as a whole. That's fine, but it's old hat for listeners to this show. Um, he was able to describe how Rhodes would have used the Insurrection Act as a means to enact his violent paramilitary fantasies. But again, that's not really direct testimony on January 6th, and not really all that new. Um, plus, he was, he was dressed oddly, right? I mean, don't wear a denim jacket if you're testifying before Congress. That is just a really odd fashion choice. The other witness um, was Stephen Ayers, who's a cabinet maker from Ohio, who's accompanied by his wife. Now, I think, you know, um, his role there uh, was that uh, he was just there to basically say, yes, when the mob marched to the Capitol, I and other people were did it believing that we were marching for Trump. So that's the extent of the usefulness of his testimony. They needed someone from the mob to say that they believe Trump wanted them to go to the Capitol to obstruct the tally of the certified electoral vote. And so Ayers did that. Ayers also denounced Trump, and he expressed his regrets, and he expressed some awareness of the fact that Trumpism is a dangerous uh, thing for the democracy in the United States. Now, I think his testimony in that regard was a little weaker than I would have liked. Uh, there were moments, uh, to be honest, I didn't think he was all particularly that sincere. He seemed just, you know, a little, like, I'm upset now that I got caught. Um, they also didn't mention that Ayers was originally charged with a felony. He was originally charged with 1512 obstruction, the account that has appeared in so many of these cases. And they didn't mention he pleaded down to a, a single count of disorderly and disruptive conduct in restricted building or grounds. So, you know, I mean, the DOJ and the committee cooperation, uh, hopefully, theoretically, uh, in, independent of one another, right? We don't know, you know, presumably he's not, he's not getting any time knocked off of the sentence. Uh, you know, I mean, the claim is that he came forward to talk to the committee of his own volition, and the other thing that they didn't mention uh, is that he actually had a co-defendant in his original indictment. Uh, Matthew Perna uh, was his friend, and we've mentioned him earlier on the show uh, because, he, of course, he committed suicide on the 25th of February, 2022. And, you know, talk about Ayers' motivations. Uh, you know, perhaps Perna's suicide played some kind of role in Ayers' decision to offer his voluntary testimony to the committee. So, to my mind, I mean, that's it. That's all I really need to say about these two witnesses. Van Tattenhove was there to just kind of explain, give background on the Oath Keepers and Stuart Rhodes, and Ayers was there uh, to say that he and other members of the mob attacked the Capitol 
because they felt that Trump had asked them to, which he clearly did. We all saw that, right? And, of course, there was the moment at the end where he goes and he, he apologizes to the officers, um, you know, and, yeah, we know how well that was received, right? I mean, so, um, you know, it, it's, I think it was received in the, the spirit that, that it was given. Uh, you know, he, he's about as, as sincere, you know, anyway. Uh, at least they didn't have an AFO defendant do that. You know, I, I can only imagine, um, you know, just, it, <laughs> it, it, was, it was a moment that, you know, it's like, it didn't bring us together. There was no healing. Um, these Trumpists are still who they are. And, you know, he's, he's going to go and he's going to go do a couple of months um, at, at a low. And, you know, I mean, ultimately, he's going to be fine. And someone like Sergeant Goodell has, has got injuries that are, you know, have basically, basically forced him to medically retire, right? So, you know, I honestly don't want to spend a lot more time thinking about Mr. Ayers. I mean, ideally, you know, really... If you were going to have that kind of testimony, I would just like Trumpist after Trumpist after Trumpist come on, tears streaming down their face, and they regret their choices. They regret their life choices. They did a horrible thing, and that's not what we had. Uh, it was fairly robotic. Um, and again, you know, did serve a purpose? Yeah. Did we need to really waste our time with these two witnesses? Not so much. So that being dispensed with, Let's move on to the other two hours of testimony that we saw on July 12th. In their introductory comments, Thompson and Cheney again made the case that we don't settle election disputes in this country with angry mobs, and also that Trump bears ultimate responsibility for January 6th. And the committee then moved quickly on to uh, the lead presenters for the hearing, uh, who were Stephanie Murphy of Florida, and Jamie Raskin of Maryland. Now, of course, the real star witness of this hearing, and, and why I, I just wanted to get Ayers and Van Tatenove all the way, was someone who wasn't even in the room, right? Pat Cipollone, the former White House counsel. So much of the testimony involved, revolved around this Team Crazy meeting in the White House on the evening of December 18th, 2020 which was described as the event that ultimately would lead to Trump issuing his wild protest tweet, which the committee depicted rightly as the decisive moment in Trump's effort to assemble the mob on January 6th. Now again, equally important here, I thought the committee, you know, they are to be commended on this. Um, they are also emphasizing the other part of what happened, right? What Trump actually said at the rally at the Ellipse on January 6th was that he was going to march to the Capitol with the mob uh, for what, you know, unsaid was an attack on Congress, right? So, you know, he said march peacefully one time in a line that was included by the speechwriters, but then went to go ahead and ad lib saying fight and attack you know, like 17 times, right? So that was clearly volitional. And that's the other part. Is that plausible deniability? Well, yes. But, you know, again, if you're saying that you're going to the Capitol when you have no business going to the Capitol, 
Your rally isn't permitted to go to the Capitol. Everyone in your circle of advisors is telling you not to go to the Capitol. White House counsel is telling you you're going to get charged with every crime in the book if you go to the Capitol. And yet you've got this group of armed people. You've taken the magnetometers down. You know that some of them are armed. And yet you're going to go to the Capitol. That is the part of it that I thought the committee did a good job talking about, you know, it's not just the wild protest. It's also the fact that we're all going to the Capitol. So, you know, I thought that, that was very effective, and we're going we're to wind up hearing more about that. Now, it looks to me like the committee is moving somewhat organically. I know I've talked about the seven-step plan. Uh, you certainly probably remember the original plan announced in April. Um, and they were going to hold eight hearings in June, and there was logically, they were logically structured, and you could break some of it down by the, the different functional subdivisions and the investigative teams. Well, we are now um, entering a new phase, right? So originally they were going to have eight hearings in June. Well, we're nearing the end of July, and we're finally hitting the eighth hearing. And I always thought that they needed to come in with a bang and go out with a bang. And hopefully that's what they're going to do. This is leading up to a kind of crescendo. So Representative Murphy was tasked with the job of summarizing the main thrust of the seventh hearing for the audience. And I'm going to paraphrase that now. So six parts. And this is different from the six-part plan. This is just... The six items that uh, basically get covered in the hearing. First is Trump knowingly spread the big lie to gin up outrage among his supporters, knowing that it was false. Second, that this was part of a coordinated effort to remain in office, including the pressure campaign on Pence, Department of Justice, and the, the state officials. Third, after the Electoral College met in the states to tally their votes, Trump and his allies turned their focus to, to January 6th. And that, uh, of course, again, that's an occasion that Murphy correctly described. Now, we don't emphasize this enough. It's a ceremonial occasion, right? It's pro forma. It's just a thing that, that happens, um, you know, because it's, it's part of the law, but this is uh, not a real thing. There's no real decision to be made here. It's already decided that people have spoken. Fourth, the December 19th tweet was a key moment in the effort to assemble a mob for January 6th. And they spent a lot of time analyzing that tweet and its effect on Trumpists around the country. Fifth, in addition to the Team Crazy meeting on December 18th, Trump also coordinated with members of Congress for his scheme to steal the election, some of whom later sought pardons, as we've learned. And I think we're going to hear more about that in the next hearing. And finally, six point, plans for January 6th went ahead despite, or perhaps because, of the potential for violence recognized by organizers. And we've had some of the first testimony with regard to that in the seventh hearing. So that's the, the basic outline. And you'll notice that Congress looms large in that. And we have yet to really hit, other than some isolated incidents with people like Scott Perry, really hit on the complicity of members of the Sedition Caucus. And I think this is pointing, uh, this is, you know, a little bit of foreshadowing for the next hearing 
when I think that we're going to hear more about Trump talking up the Sedition Caucus and their plans for January 6th while the attack is underway. All right. So the next thing, um, after Murphy spoke, Representative Raskin spoke, and he summarized Trump's effort to re retain power, uh, as, as, at least as it stood on December 2021, in December 2021. Three rings of interwoven attack were now operating towards January 6th. On the inside ring, Trump continued trying to work to overturn the election by getting Mike Pence to abandon his oath of office as vice president and assert the unilateral power to reject electoral votes. This would have been a fundamental and unprecedented breach of the Constitution that would promise Trump multiple ways of staying in office. Meanwhile, in the middle ring, members of domestic violent extremist groups created an alliance, both online and in person, to coordinate a massive effort to storm, invade, and occupy the Capitol. By placing a target on the joint session of Congress, Trump had mobilized these groups around a common goal, emboldening them, strengthening their working relationships, and helping build their numbers. Finally, in the outer ring, on January 6th, there assembled a large and angry crowd, the political force that Trump considered both the touchstone and the measure of his political power. Here were thousands of enraged Trump followers, thoroughly convinced by the big lie, who traveled from across the country to join Trump's wild rally to stop the steal. With the proper incitement by political leaders and the proper instigation from the extremists, many members of this crowd could be led to storm the Capitol, confront the vice president and Congress, and try to overturn the 2020 election result. All of these efforts would converge and explode on January the 6th. Mr. Chairman, as you know better than any other member of this committee from the wrenching struggle for voting rights in your beloved Mississippi, the problem of politicians whipping up mob violence to destroy fair elections is the oldest domestic enemy of constitutional democracy in America. Abraham Lincoln knew it too. In 1837, a racist mob in Alton, Illinois, broke into the offices of an abolitionist newspaper and killed its editor, Elijah Lovejoy. Lincoln wrote a speech in which he said that no transatlantic military giant could ever crush us as a nation, even with all of the fortunes in the world. But if downfall ever comes to America, he said, we ourselves would be its author. Now, as pre-mail, you know, uh, kind of a preamble, I thought that was pretty effective. Uh, Harkens back to what I've said in this podcast about the impunity of white mobs, or history of white mob violence in this country. Um, I do think in some levels, at some points, Raskin overplays the racism angle a little bit. Um, and, and not because it, the, the mob wasn't racist, right? They just didn't back it up enough, right? I mean, just, you know, uh, put up some, uh, you know... Some people were, you know, with Confederate flags, a little, little, little bit more imagery to support it. Nonetheless, I thought that showing the history of, you know, racist mobs, uh, again, you look at Reconstruction, right? A lot of the, the laws that we have, in effect, right, the definition of seditious conspiracy, a lot of these things come from that historical era in our history. And so I thought that the Raskin did a really good job laying a, a thick line under that, even though I think some of the times um, there were points where 
his claims about racism could have been a little bit better supported. I mean, the problem is, you know, I absolutely agree, but polemically, I think it's it's less effective because um, a lot of people on the right, they just say, oh, everything they don't like is racist, right? Well, okay, no. But on the other hand, uh, you've got, like, Packard, right? Uh, Keith Packard was Robert Keith Packard, the guy wearing the six million wasn't a word enough t-shirt. I mean, you know, these are literally people who are not merely Holocaust deniers. These are, are pro-Holocaust people. So, you know, could, could, could have just backed that up a little bit. Uh, nonetheless, I thought Raskin was, was very effective in his opening remarks. Now, as I mentioned before, I don't know why Pasolini waited to come in as long as he did. He was every bit as good a witness as I thought he was going to be. And he testified truthfully and wholeheartedly, and he clearly has an axe to grind with Team Crazy. So, you know, I don't know if this was theater. I don't know if there was something that happened with regard to Cassidy Hutchinson's testimony that somehow made him feel like he needed to come in. But he's clearly the star witness at this hearing. So the questioning uh, with Representative Murphy begins uh, with recorded segments uh, regarding the election fraud lie. Why does that matter? We covered it before, but it's the logical predicate for what happens on the December 18th meeting with Team Crazy. And they've got new testimony from Pat Cipollone regarding the fact that Trump knew that the election fraud lie was a big lie and that he had told him that and that other people had told him that. They actually even repeated a little bit of previous testimony that we'd had uh, from William Barr on that account. But uh, I won't play the clip. Uh, at one point he says, quote, I was White House counsel. Some of those decisions are political. So to the extent that, but if your question is, did I believe he should concede the election at a point in time? Yes, I did. I believe Leader McConnell went on the floor of the Senate, I believe late in December, and basically said, you know, the process is done. You know, you, that would be in line with my thinking on those things. And Murphy then says, basically, December 14th is the end of it. That's the day when the states certify their electoral votes and send them to Congress. And that's when, you know, that's the safe harbor date. You're done. Well, actually, safe harbor. Anyway, you're done at that point. Um, and there's, there's no further recourse. You've done your, your court cases and... There's, there's no other scheme. You lost the election. Uh, you should definitely, if you have, you should have conceded on ele your election night or maybe a couple of weeks thereafter. But if you haven't conceded by then, you're done. They then play a series of video clips uh, with Representative Murphy, you know, kind of interjecting and introducing them. Um, basically from various people in Trump's orbit, saying that Trump ought to have conceded after December 14th and that you're done at that point. They played uh, material from William Barr. They had testimony from Mark Meadows indirectly via Cipollone this time, not via Cassidy Hutchinson. So again, there was a question of whether or not Cipollone would 
reinforce Hutchinson's testimony in this regard? He absolutely did. I know everyone's focused on the Secret Service and the lunging, but with regard to what Mark Meadows had to say about whether or not President Trump ought to have conceded, you know, before December 14th, but certainly thereafter, after the Electoral College votes have been tallied, well, certified, and then tallied. You know, again, yeah, that, you know, Cipollone confirms Hutchinson's testimony, saying, yeah, Mark Meadows said that Trump needed to concede. There was also testimony from Kaylee McEnany to the same, basically, Trump needed to concede. Ivanka Trump saying, that's my sentiment as well. Judd Deere. And finally, uh, also, again, secondhand, more hearsay testimony, I know, from John Ratcliffe, who, interestingly, this is the only time Ratcliffe is mentioned. I mentioned last time, it seemed like Hutchinson was really kind of pushing on him. I don't know. Maybe he is, is coming forward. Um, we, we don't know. But Ratcliffe also was on, quote, Team Normal, basically, uh, at least according to Hutchinson's testimony. And again, we don't have any reason to doubt her. So all of this is laying the stage for what they're going to talk about with regard to the December 18th meeting, where you've got Sidney Powell, you got Michael Flynn, you got Rudy Giuliani, and you got Patrick Byrne all entering the White House for this meeting with Trump. And so Jamie Raskin shows the draft executive order that was proposed and was basically the subject of the December 18th meeting, whereby Trump would appoint a special counsel, uh, Sidney Powell, right, to oversee this process. And um, they, didn't, they didn't read it, but basically... Secretary of Defense is going to retain and analyze all machines, equipment, electronically stored information, and material records required for retention. Secretary of Defense has the discretion to determine the interdiction of national critical infrastructure supporting federal elections. Designated locations will be identified in the operation order. So basically, this is a draft executive order whereby uh, the military is going to seize voting equipment and basically reinstate uh, Trump using the Secretary of Defense and the National Guard. The National Guard is going to be running our uh, elections, also using the Department of Homeland Security. So basically, the complete and total and thorough militarization of the 2020 presidential election. And so that's the crux of it, right? Sidney Powell is going to be named special counsel. And we got some great testimony that I'll play for you from Pat Cipollone. Here's what White House counsel Pat Cipollone had to say about Sidney Powell's qualifications to take on such expansive authority. I don't think Sidney Powell would say that I thought it was a good idea to appoint her special counsel. I was vehemently, I didn't think she should have been appointed to anything. And Cipollone offered further testimony with regard to this whole scheme of appointing Sidney Powell special counsel and then seizing all the voting machines across the country. There was a real question in my mind and a real concern, you know, particularly after the Attorney General had reached a conclusion 
that there wasn't sufficient election fraud to change the outcome of the election. When other people kept suggesting that there was, the answer is, what is it? And at some point, you have to put up or shut up. That was my view. Why was this broader scale a bad idea for the country? To have the federal government seize voting machines is a terrible idea for the country. That's not how we do things in the United States. There's no legal authority to do that. And there is a way to contest elections, you know, that, that happens all the time. But the idea that the federal government could come in and seize election machines, now that, that's, I don't, I don't understand why we would tell you why that's a bad idea. It's a terrible idea. So again, a good witness. Um, not sure why he waited this long. I'm not sure if this is some kind of weird kabuki theater. Seems utterly sincere. Seemed to utterly recognize it. Oh, hey, having the military seize voting machines is a terrible idea. That's not how we do things in this country. It's a terrible idea. And putting Sidney Powell in any kind of position to determine outcomes of presidential elections is, you know, I don't know if it's worse. I mean, what's, what's possibly worse than that? So I thought it was very effective in that regard. And so the committee then backs this up with more testimony from Jason Miller, uh, Rusty Bowers, Justin Clark, and of course, again, Cassidy Hutchinson, basically critiquing this plan, saying how ridiculous it was and how flimsy the evidence of election fraud that had been presented to justify it was. So finally, we arrive at the meeting of Team Crazy in the White House, and we, are, we get our first snippets of testimony from the Kraken lady, Sidney Powell. The Raskin then goes on to use uh, like a little diagram, like a floor plan of a White House to give context for where the meeting took place and, on December 18th and what happened, which, you know, kind of an interesting use of resources. I guess it helps people to uh, picture visually where it happened which are then connected with John Eastman's theories. The startling conclusion is this. Even an agreed-upon complete lack of evidence could not stop President Trump, Mark Meadows, and their allies from trying to overturn the results of a free and fair election. So let's return to that meeting at the White House on the evening of December 18. That night, a group showed up at the White House, including Sidney Powell, retired Lieutenant General Michael Flynn, and former Overstock.com CEO Patrick Byrne. After gaining access to the building from a junior White House staffer, the group made their way to the Oval Office. They were able to speak with the President by himself for some time until White House officials learned of the meeting. What ensued was a heated and profane clash between this group and President Trump's White House advisors, who traded personal insults accusations of disloyalty to the president, and even challenges to physically fight. The meeting would last over six hours, beginning here in the Oval Office, moving around the West Wing, and many hours later, ending up in the president's private residence. The select committee had spoken with six of the participants 
as well as staffers who could hear the screaming from outside the Oval Office. What took place next is best told in their own words, as you will see from this video. Did you believe that it was going to work, that you were going to be able to get to see the president uh, without an appointment? I had no idea. Uh, in fact, you did get to see the president without an appointment. We did. How much time did you have alone with the president? I say alone. You had other people with you, but right from his aides before the crowd came running. Uh, probably no more than ten or fifteen minutes. Was in that? In I bet Pat the baloney set a new land speed record. I got a call either from Molly that I need to get to the old office. So that was the first point that I had recognized. Okay, there was nobody in there from the White House. Mark's gone. What's going on right now? I opened the door and I walked in. I saw General Glenn. I saw Sidney Powell sitting there. I was not happy to see the people in the old office. Well, again, I, I don't think they were providing. Well, first of all, an overstock person. I don't think this guy was. Actually, the first thing I did, I walked in, I looked at him, I said, "Who are you?" And he told me, "I don't think I don't think any of these people were providing the president with good advice." So Cipollone, uh, quite good, I think, an understatement, right? Surprised to see them. Didn't think they were providing them with good advice. Uh, I almost wish you would take the Eric Hirschman approach here, uh, because you know, just call. I mean, just call it crazy. I mean, it's absolutely just nuts what they were proposing. Now, Patrick Byrne, of course, um, has now testified to the January 6th committee. Basically did it all day on Friday um, the 14th, Bastille Day. And uh, that testimony is kind of a, you know, who knows? I mean, are we going to see some of that on the 21st, one might hope, right? But he also has not been shy. You'll remember, of course, that um, basically this is someone who's just never met a conspiracy theory that he didn't like. And also, um, you know, was involved romantically with a Russian spy, Maria Putina, who got kicked out of the country for being a Russian spy uh, for three years. Um, so this is, you know... This, these are the kind of circles that, that Trump moves in, right? Um, but here's a little bit of a prelude of, of his account of what happened during that meeting. And again, I, I should mention that this is from an interview they gave. So uh, this is not, you know, from his, his testimony. We'll hear some of that, uh, hopefully, in upcoming hearings. This is what happened. I never knew why. I thought, did we say something? What happened wasn't clear to me until I ran into Ruby again a couple months ago. First time I'd seen him in 18 months. We had a kiss to nail. Now he's a wonderful fellow. He's a wonderful fellow. Uh, great American and very temperate. And he said, you know, I told the president that if we went forward with your plan. I said, what happened? We left the Oval Office celebrating or the White House that you And we walked away and we found a couple days later it all been scuttled. He said, I convinced the president if we went forward with your plan, we'd all be in prison. We'd all be in prison. So I think what happened, putting these stories together, I think what happened is when we left, 
Rudy had his time, and he convinced the president to back out of our plan. And that's why, you know, after that was all done, an hour later, the president went on. And, see, our plan, this would all have been over in a few days. It wasn't about J6. And there was no mention of J6 of anything, no matter rally or anything between us or among us. It was, uh, I think he got taught, well, I know now that he got talked out of it in the hour we left or something. And I guess it's, he'd been excited for the evening that he met. They went back to his room and he, and he sent this tweet that said that focused again on J6, which is we which was opposite the opposite. So, you know, according to Byrne, nothing about January 6th. It's all about seizing voting machines. Everything is, is on the up and up, right? We're just seizing voting machines. And so apparently at the meeting, um, Sidney Powell gets appointed special counsel by Donald Trump for like an hour and 15 minutes or something. And then Rudy Giuliani goes back. And, you know, somebody, maybe Pat Cipollone, has, has said, we're, we're all getting arrested. This can't go forward. Who knows? But Rudy Giuliani, and it is interesting how Giuliani's words to burn kind of mirror, uh, you know, the, what was apparently floating around, right? In the White House, like, we can't go forward this with this we are all going to get arrested. Um, which, you know what? Hopefully, I mean, maybe that'll happen. But it's looking like maybe they were, uh, you know, maybe Byrne was right, right? Maybe Ruth Giuliani at this moment of sanity was wrong because nobody's gotten arrested yet. Anyway. And, of course, there's a lot more, right? So you've got Derek Lyons. You've got Rudy Giuliani. You've got Eric Hirschman. Um, and they're moving around from room to room. They're all screaming. Hirschman says, quote, I think it got to the point where the screaming was completely, completely out there. I mean, you got people walk in, it was late at night, it had been a long day, and what they were proposing, I thought, was nuts. And so there's this back and forth, and Rudy Giuliani is uh, calling them all pussies, and uh, you got Hirschman in the mix, challenging Mike Flynn, which is a just, it's an audio clip I have to play. I'm going to categorically describe it as you guys are not tough enough. Or maybe I put it another way, you're a bunch of pussies. Excuse the expression, but that, that's, I, I'm almost certain the word was used. Flynn screamed at me that I was a quitter and kept on standing up and turning around and screaming at me. And that was from when I had it with him. So, I yelled back. Had to come over sit your effing ass back down. The president and the White House team went upstairs to the residence, but to the uh, uh, public part of the residence, you know, the big, the big parlor where you can have meetings in the conference room. They call it the yellow oval? Yes, exactly, the yellow oval. And so, you know, a lot of this is new, and they're speaking directly to the people who were there. And it ends with uh, Sidney Powell getting appointed special counsel somehow. Um, and although, again, apparently Byrne testifies, or is going to testify, or hopefully did testify. Anyway, he said publicly that, well, no, eventually he's, he's not. Um, you know, that basically Trump doesn't actually really take any action on it. Um, and according to uh, Raskin, basically says, quote, 
As you listen to these clips, remember that Ms. Powell, the person who President Trump had tried to make special counsel, was ultimately sanctioned by a federal court and sued by Dominion Voting Systems for defamation. In her own defense to that lawsuit, Sidney Powell offered that, quote, no reasonable person would conclude that the statements were truly statements of fact, end quote. So even Powell, even crazy Sidney Powell, realized that, or at least has argued in court, that her statements regarding Dominion are not statements of fact. So at 1.42 a.m. on December 19th, shortly after, the, the, the meeting ends, um, and again, you know, I thought that that testimony was pretty compelling. This is going to be one of those things that perhaps, you know, when they make the miniseries, this meeting is going to feature prominently. Um, he sends out the wild protest tweet, the will be wild protest. And so from there, they move to the reaction of the Trumpist insurrectionist mob people out in the population. There are people who basically step in right away. Women for America First uh, changes their rally permit from uh, January 22nd and 23rd to uh, January 6th. So this was going to be basically a protest of the inauguration. They now want to turn it into, surprise, surprise, a protest of the certification of the electoral votes. And a lot of these basic facts, of course, not new. Ali Alexander uh, goes ahead and registers wildprotest.com, which is a site that, of course, winds up having maps and all the, the times and, you know, begins to, to have, you know, basically organize the infrastructure. I would like to see actually some more information on some of the other people who did this, right? Of course, it's not just... Ali Alexander, but again, I think what the committee is doing is reducing the complexity. They play some clips from Alex Jones and Tim Poole. I'm, I'm not going to play that. I'm not going to subject you to Alex Jones's voice at this time. And this is where we get into some of the witnesses that Raskin had promised us last in well in his uh, appearance on the Sunday morning talk show uh, that they were going to have other witnesses. And they had this kind of mysterious witnesses who had his voice, his or her voice disguised. Um, someone from Twitter, like a whistleblower. It's kind of odd that you've got all these people who are Trump insiders and they're testifying publicly, but this is someone like from Twitter. Like, I don't know if, you know, they're, they're worried about uh, maybe, you know, being in a Lady, Lady Ruby situation where they're facing death threats. I don't know. Um, but this person testifies with their voice disguised, um, and basically looking into Twitter's complicity into this, uh, saying, quote, I believe that Twitter relished in the knowledge that they were also the favorite and most used service of the former president and enjoyed having that sort of power within the social media ecosystem. If President Trump or anyone else, would it have taken until January 2021 for him to be suspended? Absolutely not. If Donald if former President Donald Trump were any other user on Twitter, he would have been permanently suspended a very long time ago. End quote. So this, again, uh, one of the you know, witnesses that Raskin promised, I, I thought 
despite the the the, the voice masking, um, you know, good testimony. Hopefully, this is something that perhaps the Justice Department is going to look into. Clearly, Twitter didn't follow their own policies, um, and you know, who knows? Who knows if they had taken away the the tweets from Donald Trump if January sixth actually even could have happened at all. And they then spend time, right? Again, the whole point of this is establishing this is Donald Trump summoning the mob. And so Raskin says, quote, uh, this is with regard to the Donald.win. On that site, many shared plans and violent threats. Bring handcuffs and wait near the tunnels, wrote one user. A commenter replied suggesting zip ties instead. We've seen many of those, right? Uh, one post encouraged others to come with body armor, knuckles, shields, bats, pepper spray, whatever it takes. All of those were used on the 6th. The post concluded, join your local Proud Boys chapter as well. End quote. So, and there's more, right? So this is where the Watkins testimony is in. Uh, this is where uh, Jody Williams, the founder of the Donald Dotwin, is also figuring in there. But basically saying, you know, right, you have this meeting, it ends. They, you know, they wind up not going with the, the plan of Team Crazy. And at 1.42 a.m., Donald Trump goes in there, issues his wild protest tweet almost immediately. You have Ali Alexander and other people springing in. You have Women for Trump, you know, changing the date on the rally. Everything is setting itself up automatically, on a prearranged basis, who knows, uh, for the attack on the Capitol on January 6th. And so we're finally at the point where they're beginning to draw some of the connections that I think many people would wish they would have drawn from day one. Encrypted chats obtained by the select committee show that Kelly Meggs, the indicted leader of the Florida Oath Keepers, spoke directly with Roger Stone about security on January 5th and 6th. In fact, on January 6th, Stone was guarded by two Oath Keepers who have since been criminally indicted for seditious conspiracy. One of them later pleaded guilty and, according to the Department of Justice, admitted that the Oath Keepers were ready to use, quote, lethal force if necessary against anyone who tried to remove President Trump from the White House, including the National Guard. As we've seen, the Proud Boys were also part of the Friends of Stone network. Stone's ties to the Proud Boys go back many years. He's even taken their so-called fraternity creed required for the first level of initiation to the group. interesting to actually see the committee having the same problems, like queuing up their video segments that, that I do uh, with some of my audio segments. So they, they try to draw the connections, and I think they do a good job, although again, what they're trying to do here is to reduce complexity, right? So, I mean, you can't possibly, well, you could, but it would have taken seven hearings uh, of nothing but this, and maybe you they could have gone this direction to draw all these connections. So, you know, you've, they, you've got a lot of stuff in there that isn't necessarily new. Um, 
Although I, I, they've got the, the Friends of Stone chat, right? Um, but they've also got some other stuff where, uh, you know, that we've seen in the, the Oath Keepers case where Kelly Maggs talks about uh, the, the alliance that he's forged with the Oath Keepers, the Proud Boys, and the Florida Three Percenters. Um, they've got the phone call between Maggs and Enrique Tario where they talk for several minutes. Uh, they talk about the Ministry of Self-Defense, the MSOD chats, uh, and they talk about the, the connection uh, between the Oath Keepers, the Proud Boys, and, you know, and, of course, again, Flynn and Stone. Um, you know, there's, there's a photo from December 12th that shows Flynn and Patrick Byrne, uh, who they, they, for some reason, at this point, and again, this shows, like, I don't know what it shows, but... Uh, at this point, we've already introduced Patrick Byrne, but Raskin says, uh, shows Flynn and Patrick Byrne another Trump ally. We already know that. We've had Byrne in the meeting already. So I, I don't know if there's like, if they're making editing changes on the fly. Um, but, you know, and they, they mentioned Roberto Menuda. Uh, so again, they're showing, they're showing the connections. Connections that, you know, again... We've, we've already seen, and we've already, you know, talked about, like, oh, hey, uh, there's there's pardons for Flynn and Stone, right? And, you know, just so happens that both of these people, uh, you know, who are pardoned between November 3rd and January 6th, wind up being key figures on January 6th. So, what a coincidence. So, I think they're drawing the connections that they need to draw. I personally think, you know, this could have been much more the central focus of this. Nonetheless, you know, it's high time, right? It's high time that we got Patrick Byrne, Sidney Powell, uh, Roger Stone, and Michael Flynn all finally getting the credit that they deserve, you know, along with people like Ali Alexander, uh, you know. Although, it would have been nice that they mentioned some of the other figures as well. Like, for example, they, they don't mention Charlie Kirk at all. They don't mention... Uh, TPUSA, yeah, they don't mention uh, First Amendment Praetorians. They leave a lot out. Uh, nonetheless, I think they do a good job of showing the links between the paramilitary gangs and this collection of insiders who are uh, centrally responsible for things, you know, like, you know, Bannon, right? Uh, you know, these people, you know, the Willard War Room figures, what I think they do a less effective job of here is, well, showing the direct connection to Trump. It's still, uh, he sends out a tweet, and then all these things happen. Unless one of the key details that uh, I believe is genuinely new is the issue of this draft tweet. So Raskin says that uh, the president had decided to call on his supporters to go to the Capitol on January 6th, but that he chose not to widely announce it until his speech on the ellipse that morning. And this is uh, was obtained from the National Archives, and the draft tweet, tweet reads, quote, I will be making a big speech at 10 a.m. on January 6th at the ellipse south of the White House. Please arrive early. Massive crowds expected. March to the crowd after. Stop the steal. End quote. So... You know, it shows the permutations and the, the changes that, you know, there's this, um, 
impulsive, you know, kind of thing. Well, no, I mean, there's actually there's actually a, a draft tweet in there. So the more new material that we have is a, this text exchange, or one text message from Kylie Kramer, one of the Stop the Steal uh, Women for Trump rally at the Ellipse organizers, uh, and my pillow guy, uh, Lindell. Rally organizer to Mike Lindell, the MyPillow CEO. The organizer says, you know, this stays between us. We're having a second stage at the Supreme Court again after the ellipse. POTUS is going to have us march there slash the Capitol. It cannot get out about the second stage because people will try and set up another and sabotage it. It can also not get out about the march because I will be in trouble with the National Park Service and all the agencies. But POTUS is going to call just call for it, quote, unexpectedly. So that was Representative Murphy uh, reading out Kramer's text message to Lundell. Now, it's interesting to, to note that um, Kramer apparently thinks they're going to the Supreme Court rather than the Capitol as late as January 4th. So I do wonder whether or not um, she wasn't in on the plans. It is interesting that there's this discrepancy. But nonetheless, she knows enough to know that, that this needs to be a secret. That, you know, this is going to get them in trouble with the National Park Service. Or perhaps she knows that no one is, is supposed to know about this. Um, maybe she knows something the real plan. It's hard to say. Nonetheless, uh, you know, again, Kramer uh, is someone who has expressed some regrets about January 6th. Um, but is someone, I believe, who's definitely you know, as culpable as anyone. And so we're finally moving in, right, to Katrina Pearson, finally moving into Kylie Kramer, finally moving to Ali Alexander. And also, figuring prominently in this, are members of what we all now call the Sedition Caucus. Not everyone who voted to decertify the election, but uh, rather the, the, the inner circle of the Sedition Caucus. And so there is an email uh, from Mo Brooks who said that he would not asked anyone to join them in the, quote, January 6th effort because, in his view, quote, only citizens can exert the necessary influence on senators and congressmen to join this fight against massive voter fraud and election theft. And I also believe that the, this is going to be a theme that they're going to talk about in the next year even though they haven't really explicitly mentioned it, right? Because the next hearing is supposed to be all about what Trump is doing during his time in the White House while the mob is raging and before he asks him to go home. So in this meeting, they tease the fact that, according to White House visitor logs obtained by the committee, members of Congress present at the White House on December 21st included Congressman Brian Babin, Randy Biggs, Matt Gates, Louis Gohmert, Paul Gosar, Andy Harris, Jody Heiss, Jim Jordan, and Scott Perry, and Congresswoman-elect Marjorie Taylor Greene. So I think that there's no, there's no team, by the way. I mean, if you look at the organizational structure, if you look at the seven-step plan, um, there's no there wasn't supposed to be a hearing on members of Congress. But I believe that especially these House members, this is the House policing its own. And I believe that this will feature prominently 
in the next hearing, or at least it ought to, right? The fact that you got all of these members, many of whom requested pardons from the Trump administration, um, you know, openly trying to, well, trying to subvert electoral democracy in America. And something else that's new uh, was the fact that there is evidence from White House phone logs that show that the president spoke to Steve Bannon at least twice on January 5th for uh, 11 minutes. And this is the point at which, of course, uh, we, I guess we know what happened, right? Because Bannon goes and blabs about it. I'm not going to play his voice. He says, quote, all hell is going to break loose tomorrow. It's all converging. And now we're on, as we say, the point of attack, right? The point of attack tomorrow. I'll tell you this. It's going to happen. It's not going to happen like you think it's going to happen, okay? It's going to be quite extraordinarily different. And all I can say is strap in. So again, we're finally seeing people like Steve Bannon brought into the mix. And um, perhaps it's serendipity, right? Perhaps it's serendipity that we finally have Bannon being mentioned in a committee hearing. Again, late, but better late than ever. Uh, and his uh, contempt of Congress trial coming up this week. So hopefully we'll see more stuff regarding all these members of the Sedition Caucus uh, Flynn, Powell, Giuliani, Byrne, Bannon, Stone, the central organizers, Kramer, Ali Alexander, all these people who it has taken the committee such a long time, I feel, to get to in order to really get to the, the center of the Tootsie Roll Pop, right? We're finally at the center of the Tootsie Roll Pop, and it's time for the owl to crunch it. And so another thing that was new is actually from Debbie Lesko, um, which is a recording that, according to the committee, was recently released. I, I hadn't heard it yet. So, again, if we're looking at things that are new and different that we haven't seen, um, I thought this, this was a, a noteworthy moment in the hearing. I also asked leadership to come up with a safety plan for members. I'm actually very concerned about this because we have... Who knows how many hundreds of thousands of people coming here. We have Antifa. Uh, we also have, quite honestly, Trump supporters who actually believe that we are going to overturn the election. And when that doesn't happen, most likely will not happen, they are going to go nuts. So, of course, the House is a small place. They knew. They all knew. Every member of the caucus and that is one of the reasons why I believe Liz Cheney has been so vehement in her opposition to this. I'm sure she got one of it, right? There is no other explanation for why all ten living former secretaries of defense would write a letter on, was it January 2nd or 3rd, to oppose this you know, crazy scheme uh, to have the military basically impose martial law and militarize the election. They knew. And so I know, like a lot of press people are saying, well, you know, this is going to be about the, the, the time, what Trump was doing. I also think that the Congress has to be a focus of this. If they don't get to this in the eighth hearing, in prime time, they need to get to this in a subsequent hearing. Because part of the role, one of the reasons why it's great that the House is doing this, is that the House can police itself. 
and there needs to be something done about these members who have actively subverted democracy, right? And you have someone like Lesko say, it's a bad thing, we need to have a safety plan. But you have so many other members who are, are down with it because, kind of like Trump, they knew that the mob wasn't there for them. They knew that the mob would be there to attack other people. So, again, that is something that hopefully they will get to in the eighth meeting. Now, the final part of the hearing, before you get to the testimony about from uh, Van Tatenhove and Ayers, concerned the, the last-minute edits to Trump's speech, which I think is not to be overlooked, right? So Trump inserts a lot of this language about fighting. He inserts language in there about Mike Pence, where he's trying to say, quote, and we will see whether Mike Pence enters history as a truly great and courageous leader. All he has to do is to refer the illegally submitted electoral votes back to the states that were given false and fraudulent information where they want to recertify. And again, this is new, right? So this is something that, that we did not know before. Um, and so you have Eric Hirschman basically walking this back. Quote, the last-minute edits by President Trump to his speech were part of the, president, of the president's pressure campaign against his own vice president. But not everyone wanted these lines regarding the vice president included in the president's speech, including Eric Hirschman. And they have testimony about this, not from Hirschman, but from Stephen Miller. Stephen Miller, of all people. So Miller has this conversation with Hirschman, and uh, he says, quote, I just remember him saying that, that he had a, don't, don't get this wrong, sort of something to the effect of thinking that it would be counterproductive, I think, he thought, to, to discuss the, the, the matter publicly. And so they, they wind up taking out this part about Pence, and uh, Trump winds up just ad-libbing it. He winds up just putting it, putting it back in. And so, uh, again, it should, it's consistent with the picture that they're trying to paint, right? The story that they're trying to paint. That basically the mob is going to the Capitol, and they're going to attack, and they're going to pressure. Um, and that Trump wants to be there with them. He makes a conscious decision to summon the mob. He makes a conscious decision to go with them to the Capitol. And he would have, right? But as we learned last time, the Secret Service basically stopped him from doing that. And it, look, this was a bridge too far for people like Stephen Miller. If you've got Stephen Miller walking this stuff back and saying, whoa, we can't say that, that that's pretty bad. Another thing that was, that was new that we learned from the committee um, was we got these text messages between Brad Parscale, uh, who had worked for Trump in 2016, worked for him a while as a, the chief of his campaign, in 2020, until he got fired because, well, he was basically spending money like crazy and perhaps, I mean, doing some weird stuff like giving himself a kickback every time he made an ad buy, which I don't know if you know, that's just something nobody does, right? No, Nobody's in, in charge of ad buys gives themselves a kickback every time they, very, very strange. At any rate, Parscale, uh, in his text with Pearson, said, quote, this is about Trump pushing for uncertainty in our country, our country, 
a sitting president asking for civil war. And he said to Pearson, this week I feel guilty for helping him win. And Pearson responded, you did what you felt right at the time, and therefore it was right. By the way, whoa, that, that is, that is, like, you want to talk about, like, you know, Christian values, that's nihilism, right? Doing what you feel right at the time, therefore it's right. Okay, sure, whatever. And Parscale says, quote, yeah, but a woman is dead, and yeah, if I was Trump and I knew my rhetoric killed someone. And Pearson says, quote, it wasn't the rhetoric. And Parscale says, Katrina, yes, it was. Uh, and they don't mention this here, right? Uh, but I think it's worth noting that whatever his regrets, uh, whatever the fact that, you know, um, it's not just one person, right? You know, it's not just Ashley Babbitt who died. Um, you know, I mean, democracy died a little, right? But, you know, you, you also had, uh, you know, like Officer Smith, you, you, you know, you've had other deaths connected with, with January 6th. Uh, the truth, I mean, you know, I mean, Matthew Perna, right? And, you know, Matthew Perna wasn't killing himself February 25th of this, this past year. I mean, we don't, you know, the, the fallout from this isn't over yet. And so someone like Parscale, as, you know, he's, he's healing on his conscience, well, he's working for Trump right now, right? I mean, he's still taking Trump's money. So, you know, whatever his, his conscience uh, might dictate, it's not, you know, he, he's perfectly willing to keep in on the grift. So those are the things I think that were new. Uh, I want to talk a little bit about the Secret Service. Now, of course, there was a whole kerfuffle over the lunge incident that I discussed in the last episode, right? So they're focusing on, you know, the, the lunge and all that. But um, there was an issue with regard to the Secret Service and whether or not they were going to be able to retrieve the text messages from January 5th and 6th. And... Uh, there was a letter from the Department of Homeland Security, DHS, uh, OIG, saying the Secret Service has not been cooperating, and they say they haven't backed up any of this information, and we've requested it. And there's a week-long thing where basically the Secret Service says, no, no, we're cooperating, but uh, there was this weird um, device exchange. Yeah, that's a ticket. And they, you know, that's my John Lovett's impression. Um... And that, that, that's what happened, and the messages don't exist anymore. Well, okay. Uh, so apparently the messages do exist, and it took less than a week. But again, uh, part of what people need to remember is that Congress has an oversight function, and Congress actually, you know, they may not have power over Steve Bannon, but you can bet your sweet booby, these are the people who fund things like the Secret Service, you don't get to stonewall Congress when it comes to something like this. So they have subpoenaed the records, and they are going to get the information uh, hopefully by Tuesday. So we may learn something regarding those Secret Service text messages uh, as soon as Thursday. Now, again, uh, you know, the Secret Service has maintained, well, this is not a mistake, right? You know, uh, there were deleted messages from those dates, but... None of the pertinent ones. We'll see. We'll see to what extent they are willing to go out on a limb. But my supposition regarding the Secret Service text messages has been that this is much more about um, Trump's plans to go from the rally of the Ellipse to the Capitol. And the fact that the Secret Service 
basically stopped him from going from the ellipse to the capital. There must have been a lot of messages going back and forth regarding what Trump wanted to do and what they felt they needed to do to stop him. So, yeah. So, you know, those are the new things we had. You know, we had the draft tweet. We had this this new material, the, the uh, exchanges from Kramer, right? This this thing about, you know, how uh, we need to, to have this be unexpected. Um, we've got more stuff, I think, another shoe that's going to drop with regard to the Sedition Caucus. I didn't mention uh, Ivanka Trump. She has this weird memory issue, uh, but nothing's going to happen, right? I mean, no. I mean, you can, that's plausibly deniable. Um, there was the, the idea that, you know, maybe Ratcliffe is going to testify next time. Maybe. We'll see. That would be really nice. Um, you know, there was a the testimony from Hutchinson, again, with regard to Ratcliffe this time. Quote, he had expressed that he was concerned they would spiral out of control and potentially be dangerous either for our democracy or the way that things were going on the 6th. Um, there's the new stuff regarding the, the, Friends, the Friends of Stone chat and the banning calls on January 5th. So there was a lot of new stuff here, and there was a lot of great testimony from Pat Cipollone that I thought, you know, really made him a star witness. Um, you know, we'll never, maybe we'll never know why it took him uh, to wait until after Cassidy Hutchinson came out to testify. But between this and the Bannon trial, there's a lot going on. Um, and I've always had great expectations of the final hearing, whenever that was. And Kinzinger and other members of the committee have said, this isn't the last hearing. It's definitely not the last hearing. They've got more material. So the eighth hearing is going to be on Thursday the 21st at 8 p.m. Eastern Time. And it's going to be led by Elaine Luria of Virginia and Adam Kinzinger, of course, of Illinois. And so the theme is going to be that 187 minutes of inaction, which is great. That is a great hook that I think that they can use for the American public. Um, they've already floated the, the who the star witnesses are going to be. So they're going to be former White House staff, some of whom are going to be appearing live. And it could be that perhaps some of these people are the people who've been threatened, right? So, you know, we still haven't heard back anything with regard to that, but Again, the committee has told the DOJ, hey, there's witness tampering going on. Uh, there, this is not a, a butt dial going on here, right? So, um, you know, we've got the Secret Service text that, again, getting handed over on Tuesday. Hopefully that will be ready by Thursday. Uh, you've got the Metropolitan Police officer who backs up Hutchinson's account of what she heard. Maybe we'll hear something from that. I expect that Patrick Burns' testimony is also going to be heard. Um, I mean, there's some things that's probably not going to happen, right? We're certainly not going to be hearing testimony from Donald Trump, uh, probably not from uh, Mike Pence, uh, his chief of staff, Short, said that's, that's probably not going to happen. Um, but I also expect some material, perhaps, on the call logs and the, the calls to members of Congress, right? There's that gap in the call logs. But that's not the only way you can slice that particular apple, right? So, you know, members of Congress, things get overheard. Um, and, you know, 
We don't know who Trump was talking to, but somebody does. And so maybe we're going to see more focus on members of Congress, you know, not just what Trump was doing during that 187 minutes, but we know he was talking to members of Congress and what was happening. Because, again, the whole point of this was to try to, you know, get Mike Pence and Congress to act. Well, um, again, that's going to involve members of the Sedition Caucus. And perhaps not were they, no, not only were they just talking to Trump, but perhaps they were also pressuring other members to try to overturn the election results. All right, so looking very much forward to the, the meeting, the eighth and final hearing, supposedly, right, uh, at least of this, what Kinzinger calls a tranche of hearings, uh, to be held on the 21st, upcoming in prime time. Hopefully this will be the crescendo that maybe will spur some actual action. You know, we don't know what is happening in the Department of Justice. Uh, they're too busy right now prosecuting Steve Bannon, right? Hopefully, though, they can walk and chew gum at the same time. And, you know, high hopes, fingers crossed. Uh, but hopefully the, the select committee can actually manage to save democracy and take, take down not just Trump and prevent him from running in 2024, prevent the, the Republicans from taking over Congress, uh, in 2022, but also this entire fascist network that is working assiduously to end democracy in America. That's what needs to come down. And if, you know, this, you know, we all, it's not just committee, it's not just political elites, this is something that we all have a hand in doing. Till next time, thank you so much, and uh, look forward to, to watching this hearing uh, in prime time.